Amen. What a great thought uh, of our coming King and how we will praise him forever and forever. I want to thank your pastor, uh, Peter, for his invitation uh, to come along this evening and to share with you from God's Word. It's one of those subjects that uh, I suppose in some ways catches the attention and uh, certainly, as Peter has said, you would have needed to have been under a rock to avoid what has been going on uh, these past couple of weeks in the Middle East. So uh, I happened to run into Peter Monday night week ago. Uh, I saw him at the Christian Institute uh, information session, spoke to him beforehand, thought I might have escaped, uh, but I didn't because he got me afterwards. And uh, well, I didn't expect anything, but anyway, he asked me would I come and do this and I'm, I was happy to do that, of course. Uh, so we're turning in our Bibles, please, to uh, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And uh, we want to read the chapter together. It's hard to know with a subject like this where to begin um, and just where uh, to turn to, um, even in Scripture. So I'm a great believer in keeping it simple. So you begin at the beginning if you can. So Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to read the chapter together. Uh, just to set the whole scene of what happens here. So Genesis chapter 15 and the verse 1. The word of God says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Amen. And we know God will bless uh, this reading of his word to our hearts again this evening. 
So as Peter has said uh, just in his opening remarks, about two and a half weeks ago, uh, we woke uh, to the news Saturday the 7th of October, 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur uh, massacre in Israel. We woke to the news that Hamas, um, a terrorist organization, that's the only word that can be used to describe them, a Palestinian terrorist organization, had launched an attack on the nation of Israel from within the Gaza Strip. Hundreds of terrorists crossed the border by a variety of different means. And at the same time, up to 5,000 rockets were launched towards Israel in a very short space of time, putting huge pressure upon the Israeli missile defense system, the Iron Dome. The operation, according to the Palestinian leadership, was named Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And Al-Aqsa is the Arab name of the mosque, which is located on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And there is uh, some talk, there's the Temple Institute in Israel and how they are trying to bring everything together for the rebuilding of the temple. And of course the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the site of the temple. And there have been moves with regards to the rebuilding of the temple for quite a significant period of time. But there are hints that the Israeli government are starting to progress towards the, the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. So this operation perhaps was triggered uh, because of something to do with that and the name of the operation by the Palestinian group Hamas uh, would hint towards the fact that it was something to do with that. Over the past two weeks, Israel have responded uh, with huge force and many parts of Gaza City particularly have been reduced to rubble. There have been many casualties on both sides of the, of the, the conflict. And I think we have to acknowledge that as the Israeli Prime Minister said, they are at war. And it is a war which is going on. It can be described in no other terms. But Israel is under threat, not just from within Gaza. Currently, it's facing threat on its northern border from Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's facing threat from within the West Bank itself. That's coupled with the ongoing threat that it has faced for many years from the surrounding nations such as Iran. If you follow social media at all, uh, it's just awash with a wide swathe of theories as to what's going on and certainly uh, a lot of different viewpoints. But the whole thing has had implications across the whole of the planet, across the globe. There have been rallies in major cities and sadly the evidence is there of growing anti-Semitism across the world. In London last Saturday, it's estimated that more than 100,000 people took to the streets marching in support of Gaza and marching in support of Hamas. And many things were being chanted, many things took place at that rally. Uh, one of the chants that you will hear of, and perhaps you've heard it on the news, is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And that's really a chant which is designed to say Israel is Jews are all to be put out. There is no place for them in the Palestinian area at all. But closer to home in Belfast and in other towns across Northern Ireland, but particularly in Belfast, the past two Sundays, there have been anti-Israel rallies. And at those rallies, there have been calls for many different things. And there's been calls for the implementation of, of something which is called BDS. Some of you will have heard of that. Some of you may not have heard of it. Basically, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanction. 
And it is, in America particularly, there's a big push from certain factions, in, even in government, in the House of Representatives, uh, for BDS. And really it's talking about uh, a demand that people should boycott Israeli businesses, should boycott Israeli uh, commerce in any shape or form, that banks and financial institutions should divest themselves of any investment that they have in Israeli commerce and in Israeli finance, and that there should be sanctions brought against the Israeli government. And that has been called for right across the world over this past couple of weeks. And the irony of it all is that it didn't just start two weeks ago. This has been going on for centuries. The whole thing has been going on for centuries. Yesterday, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said that the attacks on Israel did not happen in a vacuum after 56 years of suffocating occupation. In other words, even at the very head of the United Nations, the blame is now being turned towards Israel for everything that has taken place. And yet the truth is that for those of us who know our Bibles, none of this should be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. I would stress at the very outset of what I'm going to say to you tonight that I believe the specific attack which has taken place two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago, you'll not find it specifically referred to in Scripture from a prophecy perspective. That particular attack, certainly not as a standalone event. It's part of a, a broader situation, part of a broader uh, scenario of events. But this particular attack is not specified in Scripture. And I don't believe that it fits in to Matthew chapter 24, those off-quoted words in Matthew 24 and verse 6, where it says, There ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I don't believe this attack fits into that passage of Scripture, and I'll explain why. My study of end times prophecy leads me to believe that when Jesus was speaking there in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, that he is speaking about the beginning of the tribulation period. And the tribulation period will begin at a point after the rapture, the catching away of the church of Jesus Christ. So the tribulation comes after the rapture. And the tribulation won't necessarily begin at the time of the rapture. And scripture makes that quite clear as well. The tribulation will begin, what will trigger the tribulation period? According to the prophetic scriptures, there's a seven-year clock which will begin. And it will begin at the signing of a peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. And that's described in Daniel chapter 9. And if you study Daniel chapter 9 and you see it in its prophetic context, you will see that that's what it's speaking about. The world won't see him as the Antichrist at that time. They will see him as a great ruler. They'll see him as a great peacemaker. And we'll come to that a little later on. But while I don't believe that this specific conflict or what's happening right now is found directly in Scripture, while I don't believe it's part of the tribulation, what I can or I do believe I can say with certainty, is that we have enough detail in our Bibles to understand that Israel as a nation has always been under oppression. Israel as a nation was under oppression during the time the Bible was being penned. Israel as a nation has been under attack since it was reformed in 1948 on the 14th of May. And there are reasons why Israel has always been under attack. 
and we're going to touch on those this evening. We're going to look at them this evening. There's an element of this which is prophetic. And sometimes whenever we start to talk about prophetic matters, people switch off. People don't really want to think about prophecy. And they say, why do we have to talk about prophecy? And yet the reality of it is that when you come to the Bible, 27% of Scripture is prophetic. 27% of your Bible is prophecy. And it's hard to miss it if you're seeking to study the Word of God. I'm not saying it's all prophecy, which is future. But at the time it was penned, it was prophetic. Some of it has been fulfilled. Some of it is still to be fulfilled. Prophecy is relevant for the church of Jesus Christ today. And it's relevant for us because it should encourage us to, to see the sovereignty of God. To understand that God is still at work. And he's still working out his great plan for the ages. And as he revealed many prophecies in the scriptures that have been fulfilled in their entirety, all of those prophecies about the first advent of the Lord Jesus, the first coming of the Messiah, those have been fulfilled. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the first coming. And why would it be that the God who made the prophecies that were entirely fulfilled in the first coming, why would he not see the accomplishment of the prophecies in relation to the second coming? He's the same God. He says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. There are prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. But because of the faithfulness of God, because of the sovereignty of God, God is working out his program for man, for the church, and for Israel, right down to the final detail. Adrian Rogers was a famous American preacher, passed away just over 20 years ago now. I used to love to listen to Adrian Rogers and you can still get him online. You can still listen to him online. I would encourage you if you can uh, to try and look him up. Love Worth Finding Ministries, you'll get a lot uh, of his stuff. But Adrian Rogers said this about Israel. He said, Christians cannot deny or ignore the significance of the nation of Israel. It is God's yardstick. Israel is God's program for what he is doing in the world. I will say as well, just as I finish my introduction, it's impossible to cover everything in the time that I have tonight. Peter told me not to worry about time, but I will worry about time a little bit. Okay, I'm not going to say I'm going to worry about it a whole lot. I tell the folks in Bali I can't see the clock at the back, so and there's no clock at the back here, so we're, we're flying. But I am going to try and focus in on some of the key things that I think we can see from Scripture and, and what's going on today, and in light of what's happening, the Bible doesn't leave us without answers to the questions. So I want you to notice four things, and you'll wonder maybe why I started in Genesis 15. Well, here we are. I want you to see, first of all, there's a promise revealed. A promise revealed. In Genesis 15, we could actually go back even further than this. Uh, we're coming right back to the very first book of the Bible. and We're coming now to the descendants of Noah after the flood. And we come to the line of Shem. And Abraham is from the line of Shem. Now, I used the word earlier in my introduction about anti-Semitism. This is where we get the word anti-Semitism from. Anti-Semitism literally is anti-Shem. That is where the, the word Semitism or Semitic comes from. It's the line of Shem. Okay, so whenever you think about anti-Semitism, whenever you hear that, it takes, its, it's, it's, it takes itself right back to Noah and the flood and the three sons of Noah. And it literally means against the Semites. 
So Abraham here is uh, of the line of Shem. He's first mentioned in Genesis 11 and verse 26 as the son of Terah. And then in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, we read about uh, that the Lord God, Jehovah it is, he calls Abram out from his current country, out from his current people, and out from his father's house, and he calls him unto a land that I will show that you see that in Genesis 12 and verse 1. Uh, and then we step forward in time up to Genesis 15 where we read this evening. And here God speaks to Abram again in chapter 15 and verse 1. And he says to him, fear not. One of the great fear nots in scripture. He says, fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So God speaks to him and he tells him not to be afraid, not to worry, not to be concerned that the Lord was in control of all things, that he would defend him, that he would guard him, that he would provide for him. That's really what God has said to him at the very start there in chapter 15 and verse 1. And Abram responds to him and he uses a title of utmost respect. And you'll see here that Abram says, Lord God, that's the first time those two compound names of God are found together in scripture. It's the name Adonai Yahweh. So it's a title of utmost respect, Lord God. And Abram knows who's speaking to him, and he pours out his heart to God about the fact that he's childless. This is the concern of his heart. This is the worry of Abram's heart. He has no heir. The steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Eliezer of Damascus is his heir. And Abram's concerned about this. God tells him that his own seed would inherit the land of promise. God tells him that his seed would be great in number. They would be as the stars in number. Those that shall come forth of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he talks about the stars. So we see that wonderful promise there that God has given. God then goes on. And doesn't just speak about the air, but he goes on and he speaks about a land. He refers to this land and he says to the Lord, or he says, to, the Lord says to Abraham, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So there's something about the land here. And Abraham again, or Abraham at this stage, has sought assurance of this promise, assurance of this, of this inheritance of the land. And he says, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? So we come on down through the chapter and we see that God has, has said to him, take all of these animals, the heifer, the she-goat, the ram, the turtle dove and the pigeon, and lay them out. And these were to be laid out for an offering. Okay, but this was, there was a purpose to this offering. God was going to make a covenant with Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And you come down to uh, verse 18 and it says, and the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Euphrates unto the great river. And so on. And through all of these different tribes of people. So God has made a covenant with Abraham. Now God ratified that covenant. God ratified that covenant because he passed through the sacrificial animals that had been laid out before the Lord. That was how, why, why they had been laid out in that way. Notice that Abraham didn't go through the animals. Abraham never ratified the covenant. Abraham was a beneficiary of the covenant. God had promised. Abraham benefited from the promise of God. So whenever Israel turned away from the Lord, they hadn't broken a promise because the covenant had never been made by them. It had just been given to them. God 
has never broken his promise to Israel. God cannot lie. God cannot break his word. And God ratified this covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, just two chapters forward, you'll see that God reaffirms the covenant. Chapter 17, verse 4 through to verse 8. You see, he says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thou shalt be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. I will make thee exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an Get this word. Everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Twice God says there, everlasting. That he will establish an everlasting covenant and that the land of Canaan will be an everlasting possession. So God has made this promise there. In fact, there's even a promise for Sarah in there because he says in the midst of it, he says, kings of people shall be of her. So what we have there is this idea that God has made this, this promise. God has made this covenant with Abraham. You can come across to Genesis 22 and you'll see it confirmed again in Genesis 22. Now, you know the story here. God has come to Abraham and he has said, take thy son, thine only son Isaac. And we know the story, go up to Mount Moriah. And there sacrifice thine only son Isaac. So God has, has tested Abraham's obedience. He's tested Abraham's faith on Mount Moriah. Bear in mind what had happened back in chapter 15. Thy seed and your seed will, be an will have everlasting possession of the land. And now God comes and he says to him, thine only son, I want you to sacrifice so we come through that whole story. God has provided the lamb. There's a picture and a promise of the Savior. But you come to verse 15 of Genesis 22. God has tested Abraham's faith. He's tested his obedience. And we see the covenant mentioned again. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord. That's the Lord. Called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abram dwelt in Beersheba. So God's confirming the covenant there because the covenant had three components to it. It had a land, it had a seed, and it had blessing. And God there is confirming the covenant again with regards to his seed. Now, why is that relevant today? Why is it relevant in light of what has happened in the past two and a half weeks in Israel? Well, there's no way to, to say this any simpler than this. Israel is a nation today as the descendants of Abraham because God promised it to Abraham thousands of years ago because God said it would be so. That is why Israel is where Israel is now. That is why Israel is in the land. The Abrahamic covenant had promised those three things. And the covenant is continued throughout scripture. And there are other covenants that are built upon the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll look at what this means. And we'll see how this influences what's going on right now. You could come forward two generations. You can come forward from Abraham through Isaac to the sons of Isaac. 
Esau and Jacob. And you find the situation there where there's that little bit of tension between Esau and Jacob. And the blessing is passed to Jacob rather than Esau the firstborn because Esau despised his birthright. And the blessing comes to Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And Jacob asks for a blessing. And what is, what, what is the blessing? Well, there's a, a whole component there to the blessing in Genesis 32. But, but then it goes on and the Lord says, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. And there we have Israel. There we have this name of Israel first mentioned. It's the seed of Abraham. The grandson of Abraham is now known as Israel. Associated with the promise and the blessing that's been given to Abraham. Extending through his line, down through history, through his descendants. Based upon a covenant that God made with Abraham. Flick over in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7 now please. And we're going to look at a couple of well, one or two verses here. But we're coming into the life of King David. And when we come to the life of King David here. David is now on the throne. David has a desire in his heart to build a temple to the Lord. And God speaks to the prophet Nathan. And he gives him a message for King David. Because Nathan, in the first three verses of chapter 7, the king has talked about this ark. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. But God comes and he speaks to Nathan. And he says, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. And then there's a whole uh, statement that has to be made. When you come down to verse 10 of that statement, you'll see there that God says to David. Now this is the word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan to David. He says, moreover... I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. The covenant is continuing. The covenant continues and builds upon what had already been promised to Abraham. Now, there's something interesting here. Because this has to be future yet. This promise to an extent. Because they're going to be in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. Now that's still happening, isn't it? That's happening right now. They're being afflicted by the children of wickedness. They're back in the land. But they're being afflicted by the children of wickedness. So this has to be still future to, to some extent at least. This is part of the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant addresses the continuation of David's line uh, coming from Abraham's seed into David's line upon the throne of David. So it relates specifically to the people element or the seed element of the Abrahamic covenant. So what do we have? We have a promise of an everlasting kingdom. We have a promise of an established throne. Now that established throne, that will ultimately be fulfilled in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back to the earth. Not when he comes to the air for the church. But when he returns to the earth. To rule and to reign from the throne of David himself. And that's emphasized here in 2 Samuel 7. It refers to the immediate line of David. And it refers to the eternal reign of Christ. Both of those things are referred to in 2 Samuel 7. William MacDonald the Bible commentator writes this. He says this, pro this covenant promised. That David would have a son who would build the temple. That his son's throne would be established forever. It further promised that David's house, his kingdom and his throne would be established forever. And that his own descendants would sit upon the throne. David's dynasty has been interrupted since the Babylonian captivity. But will be restored when Christ 
the seed of David returns to reign over all the earth. See, there's a promise. Scripture speaks to us about a promise that's been revealed. There's a second thing I want us to think about tonight. I want you to think about a people who've been regathered. A people who have been regathered. In 1948, the 14th of May, 1948, the nation of Israel was constituted as a nation once again. And a people who had been removed from the land, finally ultimately removed from the land in 135 AD by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. There was a, a, a revolt against the Roman uh, oppressing Romans or the Roman conquerors of the land at that time by, by uh, a, a group of religious zealots. And the revolt is known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. And that revolt took place. And whenever that happened, the Jews were scattered abroad. They were evicted from the land, thrown out of the land. And Jews were barred from entering the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And from that time forward by Hadrian and the Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers. The nation was renamed. It's interesting what the nation was renamed. It was renamed Syria, Palestina. And Palestine is a derivative of Philistine. That's where it comes from. The city of Jerusalem was renamed as well by the Roman occupiers. It was renamed as Aelia Capitolina. Now it's no longer known as that. It's known as Jerusalem now. But in 135 AD, every Jew in the land was evicted. They were no longer there. Since that time, Prior to 1948, there had been a a slow return of Jewish people to what was then known as Palestine. But as always, according to scripture, being the land of Israel for millennia before that date. So slowly they were starting to return. By 1948, 6% of the Jews in the world, it's estimated, were in the land of Israel. As of today, it's estimated that approximately 43% of ethnic Jews in the world now live in the nation of Israel. And that's the most of any country in the world. The United States, I believe, is second. And it's somewhere in the mid-30s, high 30%. So in the past 75 years, since the nation was re-established, on the 14th of May, there's been a massive regathering of the Jewish people to the land. And there's no doubt that these Jewish people are largely returning to the land still in unbelief. Still looking for their Messiah. And that's not outside of the prophetic scriptures, by the way. That's what exactly is supposed to happen. They will return, and largely speaking, they will return in their own belief. And even with the serious threat that's going on, even with the the challenges that there are uh, continually upon that nation, that little land, that little strip of land, surrounded by Arab nation upon Arab nation, with their sights set upon Israel. Even with all of that going on, even with the numerous attacks upon them, there have been at least 15 major attacks upon the state of Israel since 1948, including the one that we've just seen in the past couple of weeks. Even with all of that, the Jewish people are returning home. Why is that? Turn to Zechariah chapter 10. Now there's plenty of scriptures that we could turn to. But Zechariah chapter 10 is one. We could have turned to Ezekiel 37. We could have turned to Jeremiah chapter 30. But in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6 down to verse 10, we see a prophecy here. I've come this last year or two to love the prophecy of Zechariah. 
Um, John MacArthur said last year at the Shepherds Conference, or this year at the Shepherds Conference, he said, don't declare your eschatology until you understand the book of Zechariah. And I really believe that. I really believe that. Not that I understand it yet, but I sort of have more of an understanding of it as I've studied it. But Zechariah chapter 10, verses 6 to 10, it says this. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as though wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad, their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. And I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. Now that and place shall not be found for them is not speaking about the Jew. That is actually speaking about those who inhabited the land at the time of the regathering. That's what that's speaking about. But you could look at that, and in fact, if you want to, and we'll do it, because we'll have a little bit of time, we'll do it in Jeremiah chapter 30. You want to flick across that as well, just to look at one of the other prophecies here. Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 9. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of them of him. But they shall serve their Lord, the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Now, interestingly, it speaks about David their king, but it was written after David had been on the throne. So it's speaking about David's seed. Speaking about a future king of the line of David. That's what it's speaking about there. Now that passage in Jeremiah 30, verse 1 down to verse 9, covers an awful lot in just a few verses. It covers the regathering. It covers the tribulation period. That's what it speaks about when it says in verse 7 about the time of Jacob's trouble. And it covers the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal reign. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up upon them. There's a promise regathering. God has said he will cause his people to return. And the regathering to the land is a sign that God's program is still on track. Absolutely still on track. Israel has been attacked down through history many, many times. Israel has been conquered by one world empire after another. And I studied, or we did a, 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 our Bible studies in the, in the book of Daniel when I first went to to Bali, I thought it would take on something difficult. I don't know why I did it. Spent two years in it. But when we studied Daniel chapter 7 and we looked there at the world empires that had conquered Israel, we noticed that Israel had been cast out of their land. Why were they cast out of the land? They were cast out of the land because they had rejected their Messiah and God had enabled judgment upon them. They had turned their backs on God and God enabled judgment upon them. 
But in that passage that we read in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 10, what did God say? God said, they shall be as though I had not cast them off. They're coming back to the land. They were cast out. As far as the world is concerned, there was no one interested in the Jew. They've been persecuted. They've been uh, through so much down through history. And yet God is not unfaithful to his people. He's not unfaithful to his promise. He's not unfaithful to his covenants to his ancient people. You could flick forward just two chapters, Zechariah 12 and verse 1. And I want you to notice the prophetic context here. Because what is being spoken about here in this passage in Zechariah, it's for Israel. Zechariah 12 and verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. It's for Israel. It's been amazing to see over these past two weeks how quickly the tide of public opinion has turned against Israel. If you were to listen to the news, if you were to listen to politicians, even politicians from, from Northern Ireland, some of them, if you were to listen to them in the Houses of Parliament, it's almost as though Hamas didn't attack Israel. That's almost just sort of pushed to the bottom of the, of, of the whole story. It's almost as though Israel are the instigators of all the problems again. Numerous world leaders have spoken out. Some have spoken in support of Israel, but they're very much in the minority. The vast majority of world leaders, including the Russian president, has come out supporting the Palestinian position. Now, there's another prophetic story there, but I'm not going to get into it tonight. Randall Price wrote about the divine preservation of the Jewish people. This is what he said. He says, they're the only exiled people to remain a distinct people despite being dispersed to more than 70 countries for more than 20 centuries. The empires of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome ravaged the land, took the people captive, and scattered them. After this, they suffered persecution, pogrom, and holocaust in the lands to which they were exiled. And we know that. History tells us that. Yet all those ancient empires have gone. Their former glories only in museum relics. While the Jewish people whom they enslaved and tried to eradicate live free and have again become a strong nation. Why is that? Because God said it would happen. It's his word. In Ezekiel 37 and 21, here's what the word of God says. It says, thus saith the Lord God, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone. And will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And that is exactly what is happening. And they're still returning. And I don't know if any of you saw, but even with this current war footing, they're still returning. I've seen photographs of planes full of men who are returning to Israel to fight for Israel. Returning to defend the land. They don't live there, but they're suddenly going home. You see, even in war, God is bringing his people back. Because that's what he purposed. That's what he planned. And God's plans will be worked out. There was a promise revealed. There's a people regathered. Now, we're going to come forward now. Because there's a peace required. There's a peace required. And these past two weeks, if you've been listening... Uh, to the media at all about this, there have been many calls for peace. There's calls at the minute for ceasefire. There's calls for 
uh, windows of cessation of violence in order to allow aid in. But there are calls, many calls for peace. Some are genuine. There's people desiring there to be peace because we don't like to see anyone being hurt. We don't like to see anyone uh, being killed, particularly those not directly involved in conflict. We don't want to see uh, those things. And the saints have been harrowing uh, to watch if you have watched them. But there's nothing new in people calling for peace in the Middle East. Since the formation of the nation in 1948, the declaration of Eretz Israel, there have been numerous attempts to broker peace. And those have been interspersed with attacks upon Israel by the bordering Arab nations. When the nation of Israel was established in May 1948, the 14th of May, one day later, the 15th of May 1948, the Arab League attempted to invade the land immediately. And they were pushed back. And they were pushed back by a new fledgling Israeli army. And the land actually extended its borders. And that has been going on ever since. That has been happening time after time. The most recent attempt to, to broker a peace deal was when, when Donald Trump was president of the United States and he negotiated a deal called the Abraham Accords. Uh, and he talked about how this was it. We brought peace to the Middle East. And you can imagine Donald Trump telling how it was going to be the best deal ever that has ever been created ever in the world. And it didn't last. It didn't last. The modern conflict has been going on for 75 years. But because of the promises of God to the Jewish people, because of the promise of a Messiah from the Jewish line, from the seed of David, the one who would be the saviour of the world, because of the, the promise that he would return again to the nation of Israel, and we'll come to that in a little while, the conflict continues. And it's been going on for far longer than 75 years. One preacher said, just two weeks ago, the sons of Abraham have always been at war. Only God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, can bring lasting peace. And that's the peace that's needed. But you know, the world's going to cry out for peace. The world's going to desire peace. And, and all the while, 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 while people are crying out for peace, the devil will scheme and he will plan the destruction of the Jewish people and the land of Israel. And listen, wicked men will carry out his schemes. Because that's always been the way. Revelation chapter 12. You don't need to turn to it. But we're not going to read it. But Revelation chapter 12. Uh, and it's interesting where it sits. In the book of Revelation. Uh, because it's really a picture of the history of Israel. Whenever you read it. And it, it talks about how the devil has always maintained a hateful gaze upon Israel. And he has sought time after time to wipe them out. And why I say it's interesting is because once you come past Revelation chapter 4, you're into Revelation chapter 4, you don't read about the church until the end of Revelation. You don't read about the church again to Revelation 19. Because Revelation 4 to Revelation 18, Revelation 19 is really about how God is dealing in the tribulation period and how he's dealing with Israel. So I suppose that's why it sits in there. It's a picture, a snapshot of the history. Of Israel and how the devil has maintained his gaze upon it. The reason why the devil hates Israel. Is very simple. Because of God's covenant with them. Because of the promise of the Messiah. Because of the promise that Christ will return. To the place where he left. 
because of the promise that his kingdom will be established there and he will be seated upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. You see, whenever, and you think right back to how the devil even sought to remove the possibility of the Messiah being born, and he continued to do that down through time. How often through the Bible and through recent history have we seen hate towards Israel? Hate that is not laid up for any other nation. You think about what happened, and listen, you could go think about the World War, World War Two. 1939 to 1945, when Nazi Germany tried to take over the world, effectively. And they had allies who came in alongside them. And they, and they committed terrible atrocities. And their greatest atrocities were against who? The Jews in the Holocaust. Now that finished in 1945. And there were reparations that had to be paid after that war by Germany towards other countries. But over time, that has all been forgotten. Germany has been allowed to rise again as a nation, has been allowed to be reestablished as a, as a part of uh, the, the European Union, and has been allowed to be this and that and the other. There's no hate towards them. There's no hate towards other nations that go through all of these things. But there's incessant hate towards Israel. There will be no peace for Israel. Until the Prince of Peace rules once again. There will be no peace for Israel until a certain event takes place. And that event is the rapture of the church. And listen, I believe we should be expecting that at any time. I believe in the imminency of the return of Christ for his church. I believe that it could happen in a moment. There is nothing prophetically uh, outstanding. It's just whenever it's God's time. See, when we see the regathering of Israel, that is something that had to happen. Whenever we see rising apostasy, whenever we see the increase in immorality and we see the increase in rebellion in the world, these are all signs of the times. These are signs that remind us that it is as it was in the days of Noah. And as the church, as, as the church of Jesus Christ, when we see all of these things, we are to look up for our redemption. We're to look for our Savior. We're to anticipate his coming. And after that happens, that will, well, not immediately as I said earlier, but what will come then will be what's known in Daniel chapter 9 as Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year tribulation period. And the seven-year tribulation period doesn't relate to the church. It relates to Israel. In Daniel chapter 9 and 24, the angel Gabriel comes and he speaks to Daniel. And he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Thy people and thy holy city. Now who are Daniel's people? They're the Jews. And where is the holy city? It's Jerusalem. And that was speaking about that 70 years, now 69 or 60, 70 weeks, 69 weeks. Those are prophetic weeks, which are, are years. 69 of those weeks have taken place. And then there was the parenthesis, which is the, which is the church. And you see, when there's utter confusion in this world, when the rapture takes place, it won't be a secret rapture because there'll be so many people gone that everyone will know. So there's nothing secret about it. People talk about a secret rapture. Yes, the Lord will come to the area and call his church to himself. But there's nothing secret about it. Because the whole world that's left behind will know. And it will be an absolute calamity. 
across this world. There will be absolute devastation in this world. And there will be such confusion. And what will happen is there will be a man who will appear on the scene. And in Daniel chapter 9, he's called the prince of the people. And he will appear on the scene. And he will provide all the answers. And one of the things that will prove his ability and will prove his stature and who he is, one of the things that will build his reputation immediately after the rapture of the church will be that he will be the man who will be able to bring peace to the Middle East as far as the world is concerned. He will reach a peace agreement, a peace treaty for Israel for seven years. And the world left behind will have found its leader. Or at least so it would appear to them. And he's going to promise to usher in a time of greatness. He's going to promise to usher in peace and prosperity for everyone. And in a world that's falling apart, they will fall for him. They will fall for him. Why is this war in Israel going on? Because the devil hates God. But it's going on as well because I believe God in his sovereign will and plan permits these things. So that his ultimate plan will be fulfilled in the final detail. You see, for there to be this man of sin who will come and everyone will love him and he'll be able to broker such a deal. There has to be intense conflict happening in Israel. There has to be something that means peace needs to be brought. It has to be a crisis of significance compared to all the other problems that are going on in the world when there's such devastation. That's why every time something happens in Israel, I'm going to be honest with you now. Every time something happens in Israel, I wonder, is the Lord coming back today? Is he coming soon? And I don't like to see people being injured or killed or anything like that. I, don't, I, I hate to see things like that. don't like the idea of people being displaced, whoever they are, wherever they're from. But truthfully, when I see things like what I saw two weeks ago, I wonder as the Lord coming back soon. There is a hope you see for the church. That Jesus is coming. Because the signs of the time tell us that he's coming. There's a promise revealed. The people regathered. A peace required. And I'm almost finished. A perpetual reign. You see when Jesus returns to the earth. And we know he's coming. And I know people have different views on prophecy, about, about other aspects of timings and all the rest of it. But here's one thing that I trust everybody agrees on. Jesus is coming back. We know he's coming back again. He's coming back to this earth. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament speak about the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he will come back to this earth. Mark Hitchcock writes this. He says, human history culminates with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it does. And at the visible return of Christ, two things are going to happen. Two things. And the first thing is this. And we're still in Zechariah chapter 12 now. The first thing is this. There will be a great ingathering of the Jewish people, not to a land, but a people who will turn to their Messiah. In Zechariah 12, the nations of the world are set against Jerusalem. Uh, the peace treaty will have been broken at the midpoint of the seven-year period. It will have been broken by the Antichrist. And he will eventually lead the armies of the world against Israel. So whenever you come to chapter 12 and you see this here. And it seems that all the hope is gone. It seems that all these enemies are standing against him. You come to chapter 12 and verse 9. It says this. 
It shall come to pass in that day. It's interesting when you read these chapters, you'll see the phrase over and over again, in that day, in that day. It's speaking out a specific time. In that day, it shall come to pass in that day. It's the Lord speaking. That I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn. Just look down, cast your eye down to chapter 13, verse 1. It says again in that day, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There will be a, a great ingathering of the Jewish people who will see their Messiah. They will see he, him whom they have pierced and there will be a fountain open for them in that day. So that's the first thing that will happen at the visible return of the Messiah. Second thing that will happen is that when Jesus returns to the earth, he will descend upon the Mount of Olives. You see in chapter 14 and verse 4, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. That's the physical return of the Lord Jesus to the place where he left, by the way. That's where he left from. That's where he ascended from. What did he say? He says, if I go, I will come again. He's coming again right to the same place he left from. He's coming back to Jerusalem. Why is he coming back? He's coming back because he said he would come back. Why is he coming back? He's coming back because God promised that the Messiah would reign upon David's throne. And that's going to happen. Zechariah 14 and verse 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come in glory. He's going to come in all of his glory. And the host of heaven will accompany him. We'll not take the time to look at it. But if you read Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16. You'll see who accompanies the Lord when he returns. There's another battle after that. Because even though Jesus defeats those enemies. The Bible tells us in Revelation. That the devil is bound for a thousand years. That he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that he must be loose for a little season. So that's the millennial reign. The millennial reign of Christ. And after the thousand years Satan is loosed. Seeks to deceive the nations again. Those who reject Christ in the thousand year period are defeated immediately. And they're cast with the devil into the lake of fire. We see that all in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. The great white throne judgment takes place. The great white throne judgment is not for everybody. It's for the unbelieving dead. Only the unbelieving dead. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't go to the great white throne. The church of Jesus Christ comes before the judgment seat of Christ that we read about in Corinthians. Where we're judged for our service. We're rewarded according to our service and our labor for the Lord. But we're not judged for our sin because our sins already been dealt with at Calvary. The great white throne is for the unbelieving dead. And listen, after that, time is over. Time will be no more because eternity begins. And when eternity begins, Jesus Christ is reigning in the holy city. In the new Jerusalem. That is the picture of what is happening. And almost at the very end of the book that God has given to us, this book, we have this confirmation that Jesus has fulfilled the covenants and that he's the provider of the new covenant. Because in Revelation 22 and 16, it says this. He says, I, Jesus, 
have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. What does he say then? He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. He's the one who's seated on the throne and he's telling us that. He's the bright and morning star. He's the promised saviour. He's coming again to rule and to reign. So all of this tells me one thing for us tonight. What's going on in Israel is not a reason for fear. It's not a reason for uncertainty for the church of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what your eschatology is on this. You've no cause to fear. Because what's going on is simply another step closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another evidence that God is simply working out his plan and his purposes. I was talking to someone about it last week and they described it as a piece being moved on the chessboard. Just another piece. The devil knows the checkmate is coming for him. And he keeps fighting all the harder the closer it gets to checkmate. He knows he's losing. And he still thinks that if he fights to the very end and if he can remove Israel, he will thwart God's plan. But he can't. And he won't. Because God has said that he will reign forever and ever. Bless his holy name. Amen.